to check it and see if it's choppy. Let me get on real quick. Hey, so can you can you go on Ustream and check if if it's choppy or anything is lagging? No, on our LinkedIn. Check it from oh, the end user. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I just want her to watch it and see if it's still choppy. Yeah, so. Okay. All right, guys, we are back on. If you're tuning in with us, if you don't mind dropping a comment, let me know if it's still choppy, if it's working. All right, Dustin said it's better. Jules said it's better. Larry said it's better. We're in business. All right. So restream. Uh, so, was, so we had to work is, around the Nord Stream fiber optic. Yeah, you know, I'm just gonna say that was Got an attack it. by the NSA for uh, talking about who blew up the Nord Stream pipeline. They just did not want that information coming out, so they took us down. But anyways, appreciate y'all uh, sticking with us for this. Um, always have. Uh, sucks when you have technical difficulties, but we just work through things. So, anyways, Mark is with me today. Chuck is out in London. Uh, I think he went on a secret mission over to Europe to figure out what the fuck's going on over there. So he's out there. Mark's with me in the studio today. We were just talking about Nord Stream Pipeline, not to be confused with Nordstrom's, like some politicians and some people on Twitter keep calling it Nord Stream. And I was telling a story, had a, had a friend come in the office yesterday. He's not in energy, but he really keeps up with uh, politics and world events. And his first question to me was, did we blow up Nord Stream Pipeline? And, you know, I just look at him and I was like, I don't know. There's a lot of talk. Was it the U.S.? Was it Russia? Was it Iran? No one really knows. But wanted to get your take, you know, from what you've seen on Twitter. Um, and is there any is there any conspiracy theories that stick out to you? Have you seen anything, any information on who might who might have done it? Because, I mean, this is a pretty elaborate job right there, like, there there's a lot of speculation masquerading as as takes based in fact here and someone said that speculation is the mere projection of one's individual psychology so um you know i think from a rational actor standpoint it doesn't make a lot of sense for putin to sabotage his only um one of his major economic arteries into uh into europe but the word rational is key there in that analysis as well. So uh, <laughs> when he can merely manipulate the valves, um, I do believe, as we talked about last time, that an escalation of the energy crisis in Europe um, is part of his strategy, a higher risk strategy to put more pressure on Europe to uh, maybe unwind its support for Ukrainian independence. Yeah. And so uh, with that, weaponization you know is that something where there's no return i'll go ahead and sabotage the lines um, i don't think the u.s um had a direct hand that's my own personal opinion i think the uh, diplomatic consequences of that and what it means for europe long term i heard that just to assess and marshal and put in place the materials and equipment and people to to mount a repair would be like 25 weeks. Yeah. And that's assuming perfect oxymoron coming, perfect bureaucratic and political yeah, efficiency so and coordination. That, 
know. So we also talk about we also talk about we're seeing signs of it. Seat. Is the you know there there's there's fraying of the unity in the in the EU. Yeah, you, you had the election in Italy on the heels of the new uh, excuse me uh, UK Prime Minister talking about um, uh, rollback of, of prohibitions on uh, fracture stimulation and um, renewed incentives for UK North Sea production. So uh, don't really know. I don't think the U.S. was was uh, kind of directly in the lead or responsible for this. Did you uh did you see Elon's tweets about peace between Russia peace plan. and Ukraine? His, let me, poll, his poll yesterday. Yeah, let me let me pull this up. So if you're not on Twitter, you gotta be on Twitter because this is where <laughs> this is where global politics is happening. So Elon puts out this poll. He says Ukraine, Russian peace. Redo elections of annexed regions under UN supervision. Russia leaves if that is the will of the people. And then cream Crimea, formerly part of Russia, as it has been since 1783 until Khrushchev's mistake. Khrushchev's mistake. Thanks for helping me out on that pronunciation. I was about to butcher that. And so, anyways, runs this poll, essentially saying, uh, should the people have uh, the will to vote? And the poll is actually pretty interesting. No, said 15, 59% said no. 41% said yes. And Elon was kind of getting dragged out on Twitter. You know, people took it as pro-Russian. I didn't. I took it as like pro-peace and giving people the power to choose. And so, what was what was your take on on that? I know you probably. I, I think it was unfiltered original thinking on the part of Elon. Without, but isn't that what Twitter is? Unfiltered that, original thinking? Like literally there to it, fucking it, it just is, shoot it, thoughts. Like, it, it is the world's largest amplifier of that. Yeah. And so you're, you're going to see that kind of dragging, as you call it, for that type of unfiltered thinking on something that is so emotional and controversial. And certainly there's, I think on his part, there's actually a, a, a real strong humanitarian push to make sure that you know no more people die yeah that's in this, what, in this horrific uh, i mean that's what conflict. elon's that's what elon's point yeah. was um you know he's like how many millions of people have to die before a resolution is is reached well, and, and we and we've heard a lot more about the escalation probability and the word nuclear in the discussion and that you know that is something that has not been really front and center in the conversation in global conflict in quite a while. And it's, um, you know, it's, it's a reminder of the Cold War tensions, some of uh, the, the peak of which even preceded me uh, post-World War II. But yeah, that, that type of uh, back into a corner of desperation, he's calling up hundreds of thousands of conscripts who don't have uh, professional military experience. So, um, that escalation usually leads to more violence. Yeah. And so I think I think he's using his platform and his voice. Although I did look, um, he's got like 107 or 108 million followers. Yeah. <laughs> Selena Gomez has 348 million, which is more than the population of the United States. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of crazy. I was watching this. this. I showed Jake this Drake music video yesterday. This is way off on a side tangent. But Drake and Future have this song and two and a half billion views on this music video. I'm like, that's hard to even wrap your head around of 
like how how much of a uh imagine if they did how a drill bit works yeah exactly <laughs> yeah yeah i need to go teach drake how a drill bit works and make some educational content on on energy david said uh our my pronunciation was almost as bad as listening to chuck pronounce massachusetts so <laughs> i appreciate taking shots at uh chuck Khrushchev or crimea while he's not while he's not here um we should probably like make a whole like highlight reel of us just mispronouncing shit on this show. Um, it'd be a pretty good compilation. So, uh, one thing that uh, I thought was pretty funny this week: uh, Case Van Hoff, the CFO of Diamondback Energy, one of the largest producers out in the Permian Basin, uh, announced that they'll be helping out the world, bring on some clean American power. 2023 they're going to be drilling 12 wells on the roll call pad so on twitter enron chairman for years for like three years plus every friday he's done friday night roll call and so diamondbacks paying some respect and i have an absolute barn burner of a pad 12 wells roll call wells i'm interested to see what the individual wells are going to be what they're going to be called so should have um, a friday night christening yeah yeah. Put it on production. yeah we uh we should tell case that that we should have a uh, party out there on our friday night so um you know american producers are definitely uh, um bringing a lot of wells online you said that there was something interesting in the lng uh market though with uh something with pakistan what was what was that about yeah i think this is an ongoing saga and it points out what the non-OECD developing world faces in the competition for really, really tight spot cargoes of LNG. Um, Pakistan closed a tender for a six-year supply agreement uh, last night and received zero proposals, zero bids for that tender, which tells you um, the market is very tight. There's, you know, there's general discussion among the investment community that, you know, it turns pretty quickly after this winter into a more bearish case kind of sub four sub three scenarios particularly with the with the specter of major lng additions really starting in 2025 um right now weather's largely in the driver's seat yeah we're in a shoulder season i saw i think this week uh we we injected 107 bcf or last week which was about 20 bcf a week above normal for this period, and we're expecting a similarly high triple-digit injection. Um, so, uh, markets in the U.S. at least plus or minus three BCF a day oversupplied going into winter. So there's there's really a supply growth risk. I think investors are paying attention to. Now, having said all that, both on the crude and the natural gas side, I think there's more of an inclination to use that dry powder if we do get a, a commodity downdraft. Um, correction in the equities we've seen it here in the last few days in the face of or leading up to the OPEC uh, mystery of the cut uh, the equities have performed really well off the bottom yeah dive into what happened at OPEC because uh, yeah I saw you know Monday opening of the market oil prices jumped up um, what's what's the deal with OPEC and what do you think uh, I saw someone giving Chuck credit for uh, what he's been talking about on that show so they're, they're I think I think Chuck did, and I told you so as well. Oh, um, did he? I didn't see that. <laughs> or as I was saying. Anyway, um, I, I'm seeing some traffic this morning ahead of tomorrow's meeting that the cut, which has generally been bandied about around the 1 million barrel plus range. There's a 2 million barrel a day yeah. number out there. Uh, 
some speculation on, you know, are we, we managing to kind of downside demand? I think the flip side of that is that I've seen most consistently referenced is when China comes off of zero COVID and there's a, um, a bounce back in demand from China, is Saudi trying to free up some headroom where they have relatively little historical uh, spare spare capacity relative historical cushion? Um, are they preparing to have capacity available for the China reopening? And then, you know, as we've seen throughout the course of the last round of cuts or the, 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 the past compliance and the level of quote unquote voluntary cuts, which means declines kind of eating away at my spare capacity. So I have none. Yeah. <laughs> if you're one of the lesser players within OPEC 10 um, and certainly with what's going on um, in Russia and, and capital investment, uh, the structural issues continue um, in a normal market where demand is, is stable or increasing that you're going to have uh, physical supply constraints. And, and so, you know, more roll call pads, please. <laughs> Lots more roll you know, call we'll pads. see there. There's, I think, uh, I think Brian Sullivan actually made his first post COVID trip or is making his first post COVID trip to Vienna for the, uh, for the OPEC meeting tomorrow. Um, did you, uh, going on. did you see what Shell CEO said about Chinese coal? Yes. This was, this is <laughs> kind of mind blowing to me because we talk a lot about how China's building coal plants, but to put this into perspective, Shell CEO said, this quarter, China grew coal production by more than the entirety of Shell's global energy production in one quarter. Right. Think about how much power that is, how much energy that is. And in a quarter. You know, it's funny because on Twitter, people are always arguing like the renewables, the oil and gas folks will point to like how much coal they're building and renewables are like, yeah, look how much renewables they're building. They're just building a shit ton of energy infrastructure. Like they have the ability to build a lot more than what the United States does. Well, well, the coal-fired generation build-out has been part of that conversation. You know, how do we how do we keep up with that in terms of emissions reductions, which has been a great story in the U.S. as gas has been substituted for coal over the last 15-plus years. Mm -hmm. And it's the best actual measurable emissions reduction story on the planet. Yeah. And you have, I believe it's a combined India and China coal-fired generation capacity year-on-year that equals half of a Texas in total generation capacity. Yeah. <laughs> Those are gigantic numbers. Yeah. And, you know, I, I look back at to some of the things that have have been of lesser have been given lesser attention is the economic growth that's going on in particularly Southeast Asia. Take a country like Vietnam. They've got a, a massive natural coal endowment. And the citizenry is a, is very aware of what the downside pollution trade-offs are. Yeah. But we're not going to stop this economic train. Yes. Yeah. Is, is really the, the reaction from the, the populace in a country that is, you know, highly, highly dependent upon um, more accessible, reliable energy. And, and they've got it. And yeah. Offer them an alternative that competes with that is, is really the message. Yeah. And, you know, a couple of other things around coal. Um, Germany announced that they're going to extend a couple of old coal plants, which I don't think anyone is going to <laughs> argue with that just with what they're facing. But then uh, Aramco also said that um, I saw I saw a quote. I think this was from 
was this from? Same their... energy conference in London where um, uh, Van Buren and uh, Amin Nasser are speaking and making these these comments. Okay. And where where, I saw, where I saw quotes? If you think about it, we're transitioning to coal. I thought that was kind of <laughs> brilliant. <laughs> well, we used or we're on pace to use globally eight billion tons t-o-n-n-e-s <laughs> this year with the iea now projecting that 2023 is going to set another record in coal consumption so as tongue-in-cheek as those comments were and he made them ahead of uh, about a month ahead of the next cop which is number 27 i don't know yeah. how the numerical designations came to pass i uh, but the irony of what's going on in terms of the resubstitution for coal, which is not insignificantly a function of the squeeze that has been part and parcel of the natural gas market here up until very, very recently. We've seen some relief in natural gas prices, but you've had huge, huge rotation into coal. Yeah. The, um, you know, we talk about this quite often. Not, there's not really an energy transition. It's an energy addition. Right. Just adding energy to the mix, whether it's renewables, um, coal, oil and gas, like energy demand keeps growing. And we haven't really, the closest thing that we've seen to a transition is here in the United States going from coal to natural gas, like you mentioned. So Jeff Curry was out yesterday. He's the longtime head of commodities research at Goldman Sachs. Um, and I saw this in a number of places and I may be wrong on the, on the time frame, but the, of the 13.8 trillion that's been invested over the relevant uh, decades in uh, renewable growth, we've moved global share of the energy pie for fossil fuels from 82 to 81%. That's almost $14 trillion over that time span. And we're now looking trillion? at at an acceleration of all that as we've all talked about and have been treated to with headlines over the last five years or so as we've you know taken on a number of issues or have, a lot of issues have come up as a result of our uh, of transitioning the generation stack for example thinking back to yuri back in 2021 and so <clears throat> just look at how sticky um, hydrocarbons are in terms of the overall energy mix. I mean, that's the reality for most of the developing world. Uh, yeah. Last last point, and it, it goes back to OPEC about a year ago, put out their 25-year uh, production, global production forecast, or global demand forecast, sorry. Uh, they had a net 8 million barrels a day of global demand growth between 2020 and 2045. That was a growth in non-OECD of 12 million barrels a day and a contraction in OECD of 4 million barrels a day. So net 8 million barrels a day, not 8 million barrels a day a year, obviously, but 8 million barrels a day in 2045, higher than in 2020 or 2019. So baseline year, call it 100 million barrels a day. Um, I don't see a lot of major projects outside of places like the Guyana Basin that are adding more than a few hundred thousand barrels a day. And that's, you know, keeping this thing going, talking about the global production complex, great work by folks like Diamondback and the roll call pad and all the technology and efficiency that's been brought to bear. It is a lot of very, very little things that add up 
to being able to continue to fill that supply gap. And so we can't really stand more than our normalized rate of growth of one to one and a half percent per year. I got to tell you something really funny. You said folks, but I thought you said <laughs> fucks. It's like fucks like Diamondback. I'm like, damn, dude, that was aggressive. <laughs> Travis was a classmate. So. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I, I like Diamondback, guys. <laughs> oh, man. All right. So it'll be interesting to see what happens over the next week um, with the uh, with Nord Stream. And I, I'm sure it's going to be a heavy topic over the next uh, at least month or two. So we'll keep our eye on that. Um, to round out the show, we do have, we, we actually have two finger of the weeks. We have one that me and Mark talked about. But then I have a second one. I came up with one during this show. So let's, uh, let's start with yours. No, let's start with let's start with uh, the first one because mine's a little bit long winded. It's a little bit of okay. a rant. So uh, we are standing in unity with Chuck, and we know Chuck would want to give finger of the week to IAH Airport, George Bush Airport. Says so a shit show Sunday morning. He's trying to go to London. There should be no one there, right? And traffic was so bad getting to the airport that he had to get out of his car, and he had to walk for like a mile and a half. You're making Chuck Yates walk a mile and a half to catch his flight. What are you doing? It was a non-holiday weekend, <laughs> and when you come around that curve, always check your nav map to see if there's a big red line around that curve going into the area between terminals E and D and trying to get to C. And if there is, go check in in Terminal B and take the tram across. But this is a construction project that that demolished the Terminal E parking garage to make way for a new international arrivals facility. So we got two <laughs> years of construction-related nightmare trying Chuck, to get into IAH. Chuck, we're looking out for you out here. All right, so here's here's my, uh, my finger of the week. This one I'm a little hurt by. I just discovered this during the show. I was looking at Twitter. I was blocked by this lady. She's a doctor. She's a PhD in like Renaissance literature. <laughs> anyway, she put out this tweet. And this tweet said, watch out for the phrase coastal erosion. What folks are actually referring to is sea level rise. Hashtag in climate silence. I retweeted it and I said, hey, fortunately, there are many geologists on Twitter that can weigh in on this. That's all I said. And then Twitter's... EFT's geologist came in here and I mean, just dropped some science. I learned so much about rocks. Love these rock lickers. And <laughs> I got blocked for that. I got blocked for having a scientific discussion on coastal erosion and climate change with scientific facts with scientists who study this shit for a living. And that got me blocked. So finger of the week to all you PhDs in Renaissance literature. You don't know anything about climate or energy, so I, I thought I thought a hand getting blocked by someone with a PhD in Renaissance literature would be a badge of honor. Yeah, I mean, who am I to talk? I didn't even go to fucking university, so <laughs> <laughs> this is like the two two extremes clashing on Twitter. So, guys, that wraps up our show this week. Appreciate all of you tuning in and also uh, sitting through our technical difficulties at the beginning always appreciate that it's always awkward when you guys sit here and y'all can't hear us and we look like we don't know what we're doing we do know what we're doing Bossel knows what he's doing over there so um if you do want to talk any shit please direct it over to him we will be back next week we have fuse coming up make sure to get your fuse ticket before they go up 
if you're listening to the show and you're in the comments, send me a DM. I'll give you a discount for supporting the show. Catch you guys next week, Tuesday, 1030 a.m. Central Time.